Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. Everybody. Pod. Rock your body. Pod. Everybody. Clash Ouch. is back, back. all right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Album Clash, everyone. It is our long-awaited, by us at least, return. Hope you've uh, <laughs> missed us while we've been gone. We have we have missed doing it as as we explained in our in our last episode and in the preview. We just had some shit going on and we would have recorded yeah. last week, but I had I had my second bout of Rona. That's true, actually. You have had the plague once again. Yeah. So yeah. Riddled with it. <laughs> uh, are you recovered now? I am fully recovered, yes. Um and I am good to go. And have you been making liberal use of the factor fifty uh, in light of the recent lovely weather? In no, this I've gone for the cheaper option, which is um to avoid daylight. <laughs> yes, thank you, Nosferatu. <laughs> yeah, so it's live season. Uh, as we said in our little trailer last week, we are starting things off with two of the biggest acts you could probably think to do. And, and Kev finally gets to go through a Bowie album, but not today. That's going to have to wait for a couple of weeks. Today, we are doing Queen live at Wembley. And uh, just to remind people, Kev, what are we putting that up against in a couple of weeks? In a couple of weeks, we will be going through Bowie's um, Glastonbury set from 2000. Indeed. And what are the connections? Well, they're both live. Um, yep. <laughs> obviously, in both se- in both sets, there is a performance of the same song, which was recorded yep. by both of them. And let's face it, they're both iconic artists with massive back catalogues of boss yes. tunes. Absolutely right. I've got, I've put in both cases that they are career defining live performances that aren't actually career defining live performances, but have taken on a mysticism in the years since their recording. Mm, yeah, I can see, I can see why, and I suppose we'll we'll get into the long grass of that because that's very unlike us. <laughs> well, that's the one thing I was going to say. Anyone who has listened to the uh, the bonus episodes that we put out uh, in recent weeks with. Uh, myself and Shell going through divorce albums, we'll notice that they were somewhat shorter than our usual output. <laughs> um, I'd also like the opportunity to say uh, Shell did a boss job. She did. She really did well. My only thing, and the thing that I texted you, was I was disappointed that when the prospect of a Dylan Ness and Dormer, it, there was no... <laughs> Ness and <laughs> and apparently, uh, I missed the opportunity to talk about a uh, COVID vaccine denier in uh, Mancore. Indeed, yes. So, uh, Jim Core is a vaccine meth. Like that prick from Mumford and Sons and Matt Letizia. Yeah. I mean, who knew that that was the most interesting thing about Jim Core? <laughs> I can't believe I'm talking about the cause again. This is just wrong. maybe that's going to be this season. This season of the pods' uh, new motif <laughs> is that we're going to find a way to shoehorn the cause yeah. in. We're gone with eighties TV. <laughs> it's time for the cause to it's, have it's their for day. It's for bad nineties pop. <laughs> 
but yes, I would very much second what Kev said. I think Shell did a fantastic job. She put me to shame in terms of the extent to which she'd researched both albums, which is saying something because I'm usually the more diligent of us two, let's be honest with you. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you, Shell. Hope you enjoyed those. But um, well, let's get on with it, shall we? So, Tim, do you have any shite stuck in your head? Oh my God, yes, I do. So, we have spoken often, I have spoken often and at length on previous shows around the trend for slowed down acoustic cover versions of 80s and 90s (laughs) songs. Yeah. That genre has undoubtedly reached its nadir. Well, in fact, this isn't a recent thing. Apparently, this version of this song was recorded in 2016, and I haven't even noted who it was by, but. And I can't even remember where. I was watching something on television, okay? And whatever I was watching in the background was playing an acoustic version of the song Tarzan Boy by Baltimore. Okay, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> no! <laughs> I mean, honestly, the juxtaposition of soft acoustic guitars and breathy vocals with... It's just... Sorry, what is going on? Honestly... Stop now, everyone. Stop it. It's all bad. I'm just waiting for a fucking version of Spaniards Call Me with breathy vocals and acoustic guitar. What is going on? No. So, yeah, I've had Tarzan Boy stuck in my head for about three weeks now. Wow. (laughs) Exactly. So, my... Well, mine is mine could fit in both. So we, that my, I have one choice which can fit in both. Okay. I think it's a belter, but it is quite partridge. <laughs> All right. I, I think I know what this might be. Go on. So obviously we we talked about the part of the reason that we were inspired to do the live season was it's festival season. Glastonbury was all over the telly. Mm-hmm. And Macca did the Saturday night. And he did an absolutely cracking job. Brilliant. Which... Has I've been delving back into McCartney's back catalogue. And, well, also inspired by the fact that you were doing uh, divorce albums, it reminded me of your stag do and a song that, <laughs> that we amazingly, it was in Blackpool and we heard everywhere. So many times. Yeah. So the song is, and it can, as I say, it's dead partridge, so it can fit either in your shite or good. <laughs> I'm calling it a belter, but it's up to you. Is Jet by Paul McCartney woo, and Wings. Woo, woo. I'm sorry, but that is a fucking belter. Uh, so I'll leave it up to you. Do you want to go on a playlist or not? Because I'm so going on the playlist, because it it's a belter. Great. It is a belter. <laughs> but yeah, uh, my stag do, uh, 19 years ago, as it happens, in Blackpool, Classy, you know, classy guys. <laughs> yeah, it it just it was, it was being played all over the fucking place. It was like at the pleasure um, beach, like walking down yeah. the the prom and that, you know, like everywhere we just heard Jet. And if I'd been McCartney, I'd have got rid of Hey Jude off that set list and played Jet instead. Oh Christ, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good, I'm happy with that. So I've got another one to call out, and uh, it's a little known song. It's called Running Up That Hill. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> So, no, my, my choice for the uh, Can't Get Out of My Head playlist this week is a song called F- Sliding Through Our Fingers by Quedo. Uh, that is the alias of Jamie Teasdale. It's taken from his upcoming album, Infinite Window, which will be released on the 29th of July. It is a 
brilliant piece of ambient electronic music. And so it's right up my street. I love it. Okay. That, I mean, that sounds really interesting. I've got to admit that as soon as you said um, that it was Quato, that my brain instantly went, isn't that like what the rebel leader was called in Total Recall? <laughs> well, it's Quado for starters. Uh, yeah. uh, and yes, it was. But I heard, I heard what I wanted to hear. Which just made me. You th- think this is the real Quaid? It Jeez. is. <laughs> uh, watch Total Recall. Yeah. Get yourself a Johnny I... Cab. <laughs> <laughs> We've already been going about fifteen minutes. Should we get a move on? <laughs> oh, editing. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it. Every two weeks, mate, Malik's they're going to get everything. <laughs> have you got any top trumps, Kev? Because I have very, very few. Because. So it was quite difficult to do Top Trumps because it's a mo- like it's a modern release. Yeah, twenty eighteen the album yeah. came out for the Bowie album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, there's only one category that I have nothing for, so uh, I might win this. So I've I've only got one category. <laughs> do you know what? I I would say I'll listen to all of them, but no, I'm not like that. I. I don't care about the listeners. I don't care. This is essentially dead content. I, I, I want to win, so we're going through them all. <laughs> really? I can't. Yes, really. <laughs> I can't remember who's who won the last one. Well, you, so... you might as well go first because you're going yeah. to win. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what have you got in sales for uh, Bowie Live in Glastonbury? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Okay, uh, so uh, Queen Live at Wembley sold over 2 million copies worldwide. What do you have in charts? So okay. I've won that one, yeah? Okay. I've won that yeah, one, yeah? yeah. I've, so I have got charts. Okay, um, go on then. What have you got the, in charts? And the reason that I'm excited about this is because, well, I've got to see the list of the different charts that they have across Europe. <laughs> so it reached its highest in, well, one half of Belgium. So the ultra-top <laughs> Flanders... The Walloons weren't so keen. Only number 30 in Wallonia. <laughs> what did he get in Flanders? 18. <laughs> it's not the best you can that do. It really is. <laughs> well, it's really, it's really just because I, I wanted to bring up the fact that there are two separate charts in Belgium. Um, and it, I mean, it did crap in Switzerland. It only reached 53 in the Schweizer hit parade. <laughs> so... Is that the only category to which you yes. have? Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm still going to go through everything. Right, so this album got to number two in the UK. So Queen Love at Wembley, number two in the UK, number 53 in the US. So Ooh. can we just say I've won that no, one as well? because I got 21 in the top alternative albums. Yeah, top alternative albums. I'm talking about the fucking Billboard Hot 100. It's got Billboard in brackets. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's 2-0 then. Uh, any certifications? Nope. <laughs> uh, okay, so Queen Love at Wembley went platinum in the US, the UK, France, and Spain. I have nothing for awards, however, so there you go. Nope. It's not a whitewash. <laughs> you can have a draw. Well done. <laughs> Anything on lists? It's considered one of the best Glastonbury performances. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, it is. And there is actually a list which puts it in there. I don't know where it is, but 
Uh, fine, fine, okay. So the enemy put Live at Wembley as number 36 on its list of the 50 best live albums in 2015, which I think is quite low for this album. But anyway, I, there you I go. have seen that list and it is a bit of a weird list. It's a very weird list. Uh, so are you telling me you haven't even got anything for. So I'm what? 4 0 up now with one draw, with one mm-hmm. category to go? I'm still doing it. I don't care. Sorry. It's, it's my podcast, not yours, the listeners. You don't own it. I do. It's my idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you not even got any critic scores to go through? The best the best I can do on that is there was there was one review that I could find, which was on in Uncut, uh, which gave it four out of five. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, so, uh, right. I've got two reviews. I've got Rolling Stone, which gave it, which gave Queen three out of five, and All Music gave it three and a half out of five. Ooh. So do you know what? I am prepared to concede that one because you have a four out of five review, uh, and Queen Love at Wembley does not. So you have actually won a category. Get well it. done. <laughs> oh dear, a complete waste of everyone's time. Yep. But I don't care. I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, should we crack into this then? Yes, let's crack into Queen Live at Wembley because the one thing we should have said is these are two pretty long albums. Yeah. Strap in. You'd have you'd have thought after a long time off we'd have come back with something nice and easy to wet your appetite and get yourselves back in. No. We've got 28 tracks to go through here. Look, long-time listeners know that we commenced our pod with two double two albums. Two double albums. And it, in fact, <laughs> it's only because we decided we couldn't be arsed that we didn't do the Apple Scruffs um, third disc. To be clear, you, you decided you couldn't be arsed. <laughs> I would have been very happy to do the Apple Scruffs. I, I like the Apple Scruffs. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. Queen, live at Wembley, 1986. Recorded 12th of July, 1986, at Wembley Stadium, obviously as part of the Magic Tour. The album was not released until the 26th of May 1992. It was released on EMI stroke Parlophone in the UK and Hollywood Records in the US, produced by the band Queen. So, just from that, there is another link between the two. Go on. They are both posthumous releases. Ah, yes, of course they are, indeed. Good shout, good connection, well done. All right, so... I talked about career-defining live performances, which aren't really, because Queen's career-defining live performance came at the same stadium, but 12 months previously. It's Live Aid. Mm-hmm. They were riding the crest of a wave after Live Aid. It basically revived their career. And in particular, after they'd quite rightly received a lot of opprobrium, the previous year for playing not one but nine nine kevin dates at the sun city venue in apartheid south africa yeah roger taylor we are going to go on about fucking sun city because you broke sanctions you prick Absolutely. Roger attempted to justify that by saying that they were only playing for their fans and the concerts were played in front of integrated audiences don't give a fuck mate Bad Queen. You took the blood money. Absolutely they did. I mean, there's a whole Paul Simon conversation to get into, which we absolutely will do on Album Clash one day, but today is not that day. No. But yeah, Roger Taylor, you're a bellend. That's not the last time I'm going to say that on today's Clash, by the way. <laughs> I, I'm, you, can be, you can be guaranteed that I'm going to join in. <laughs> 
So, but even that excuse of, well, we were just playing to our fans, that didn't mean, that that still didn't prevent them from being added to the UN list of blacklisted artists. Not unreasonably. Them and Mike Gatting. <laughs> Mike Gatting sold out 20 consecutive nights in Sun City. <laughs> what is funny, though, is, I don't know about you, Kev, but I can't remember that scene appearing in the multi-Oscar winning film Bohemian Rhapsody from a few years ago. Can you? No, funnily enough, that was kind of exercised, as was everyone else's involvement in debauchery. It was only it was only, <laughs> it was Freddie, only Freddie Mercury who was yeah, involved in anything like that. Quite. Right, anyway, sorry. So Live Aid was the perfect opportunity for them to restore their reputation. It was, and you'll know these numbers anyway, if, if any of you know about Live Aid. It was watched by an estimated 1.9 billion people on television around the world. It remains the definitive moment of Live Aid. Sorry, Phil Collins, you may have played both gigs, but you're Phil Collins, so no one gives a shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in 1986, Freddie Mercury told the Japanese publication Music Life that, from our perspective, the fact that Live Aid happened when it did was really lucky. It came out of nowhere to save us. For sure, that was a turning point. Maybe you could say that in the history of Queen, it was a really special moment. And it, and it was. Yeah, let's I mean, be honest, you know. so there's... I can't remember if it's a documentary about Queen or if it's just about Live Aid. But there's an interview, you've seen the same one where Dave Grohl's interviewed on it. And he says, like, mm-hmm. you know, Zeppelin play, Bowie plays, McCartney's on there. Yeah. You know, everyone's playing that. And Queen smoked them all. Absolutely right. That is ex- that is a exactly what Dave Grohl said. And he's spot on. I think it was about Live Aid. But mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely right. So at the back end of 85, Queen released One Vision. Uh, that was followed in 86 by A Kind of Magic, the album which was a multi-platinum selling album. And so to promote that album, they went on a European tour, 26 dates. Audiences exceeded 1 million people, 400,000 of whom were in the UK alone. Two sold out nights at Wembley Stadium on the 11th and 12th of July. The 12th of July, the second of those two nights being the night uh, that was recorded for this live album. So suffice to say, given those numbers, the production was somewhat epic, and particularly for 1986. Mm-hmm. Right, so here's some facts, some figures. The tour had three separate outdoor stages, which were leapfrogging each other on the continent. So you had one being constructed, one that was being used for live performances, and one that was being dismantled. Each of those stages needed six 15-metre-long articulated lorries to transport. In addition to that, the band's equipment needed nine 15-metre artics to transport between venues. It's safe to say that fuel economy was not high on the agenda. (laughs) No. It wasn't a minimalist show. (laughs) No. Okay, so for the tour, obviously the Four members of the band being Freddie Mercury, Roger Taylor, Brian May and John Deacon. They were joined by keyboardist Spike Edney. They played gigs at Slane Castle in Dublin to an audience of 95,000 people. They played Behind the Iron Curtain in Communist Hungary to an audience of 80,000 people in Budapest. And the tour finished with a gig at Nebworth in front of 120,000 people on the 9th of August. 
in what would prove to be Queen's final live performance. It was their final live performance, Kev. Queen has never performed <laughs> live since then. I agree. <laughs> so they initially uh, intended to play a third night at Wembley, but it was not available. So that's why they went for Nebworth instead. Horse of the Year show. <laughs> no, it was when they used to have the Greyhounds. <laughs> Oh, it's the monster trucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, they had no problem filling big venues and playing to big venues. So, there was a documentary to support the DVD release of this performance in 2003, on which Brian May said, 1986 was a great pinnacle for us. I think we were damn good at that point. Freddie was stunning and had developed this amazing way of dealing with a whole stadium rather than a small gig. It was a big, big occasion for us and a little bit of nerves. It's different coming home when you're in your hometown. A little extra needle, a little extra stress, but great. Roger Taylor in that same documentary said Wembley was a tough gig. Because of the physical size of it, you better go down well there. You don't want a quiet audience because you won't hear them. You need a roar. And it was okay for us, but you knew that you were going to have to work quite hard at Wembley. You'll note there that only Brian May and Roger Taylor gave uh, interviews for that documentary, and not John Deacon, because he's a man of integrity. Indeed. And, you know, you do have to work hard at Wembley that, you know, if the pitch does uh, sap your legs. <laughs> Especially in the heat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, although the album itself wasn't released until 1992, the show was broadcast on a special edition of The Tube, I'm sure it was hosted by Jules Holland and Paula Yates. But anyway, there you go. Uh, it was simultaneously broadcast on Capital Radio uh, in what was billed as the world's first ever stereo simulcast. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, tickets for the original concert cost just £14.50. Wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, support bands, uh, It was the show was opened by Status Quo, as was Live Aid. Uh, then uh, someone called The Alarm played, and the last support act was in excess, just before they were about to go absolutely global themselves. Mm-hmm. Right, okay, that's about it I've got on background. So, Kev, when did your dad first play you Queen Live at Wembley 1986? So he, he never did. Oh, um, wow. Because this was a sort of a posthumous... 92 release he never bought it so the live album he had was the live at rio oh okay which came out like maybe 87 or something yeah, like that yeah, 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 so yeah. I'd, I'd heard that one so this was the first time i'd i'd heard it but yes um as tim sort of alludes to i very much grew up with queen as a <laughs> a background my dad absolutely buzzes off them <laughs> Can confirm. (laughs) (laughs) So I, uh, this is the first time I've listened to the album, but I distinctly remember, so one of my brother's mates was banging to Queen, Mm -hmm. and I distinctly remember that he'd recorded on his old Betamax video that Tube TV special that I talked about, which wasn't the whole gig, actually. It was a sort of cut-down version. And we borrowed it. And I just remember watching it over and over again as a kid. Because obviously, my, you know, again, it's another one my brother got me into. But it's like, mm-hmm. fucking hell. Like this, this, and there's so many iconic moments from this gig. So whilst this is the first time I've heard the album as the whole gig all the way through, 
basically back in 86 i i was familiar with this it's kind of my first introduction to queen i get well yeah I, I remember a kind of magic the single getting released and the video to that with the cartoons and as a kid you're like oh that's a good video it's got cartoons in it you know um and then this following on from that was like mm-hmm. yeah get in uh, so yeah, there we go. I'm I'm surprised. I thought you'd have had a long history with this. No, no, not at all. As I say, my dad had a a different live album, and he was happy with that one. And you know, it is a cracker that that one as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, shall we have a little chat about artwork? Uh, yeah, okay. So it is it is the iconic Freddy look pose. Yes. Like yes. it's. When you think of Freddie Mercury performing, that's it's that outfit. It's it's everything like the shortened uh, microphone stand. It's yep. all exactly what comes to your head. Exactly that. It's it striking a pose. The matador outfit, the microphone stand, and some absolutely boss Adidas traps. Can we He's just... got some really like I did know. I noticed that watching um, the Live Aid performance back. I was like. I really like your traps. Like, they're really <laughs> exactly. good. Yep. Yep. It, it is iconic. So, uh, yeah, but I have nothing more to say about it. No. Right. Shall we start talking about the first of the 28 tracks? Yeah, we we, to we're going to have to crack on because we've got a lot <laughs> to get through. Right. We start with One Vision. One Vision was the first single from A Kind of Magic, as I mentioned earlier. It was released in November of 85. It got to number seven in the UK, number 61 on the Billboard Hot 100. So I just want to read a few things from that documentary around the setlist composition and and on the the way they started the show, because I think this is important for both albums, actually. So Brian May said... The first moment where you hit the guitar, the first point of the show is always a terrific rush. And yeah, you do feel nervous. Going up the steps, you get this moment of, oh God, am I really going to do this? But there's such an enormous rush of adrenaline going through your body that it gets swamped by this excitement. And you just want to go on and do it. There's nothing quite like that. We were very aware as entertainers that the shape of the show is vitally important. A lot of people have no concept of this, but you, can, you can't just put a load of songs together willy-nilly. You have to shape the show to maximise your impact. Roger Taylor said, basically blind and deafen them in the first 10 minutes. While they're recovering from that, slip a few not-so-good ones in. We will definitely come back to that in a bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, to which Brian May said, take it down, do something slow, something that takes a little more thought, and then gradually build to the next climax. But basically, the beginning and end of a show is vital, and we were very aware of that. And the first thing I'll say, before we get into talking about One Vision and the performance and everything, is fucking hell, they were absolutely aware of that. Mm-hmm. The structure and pace of this set list, ignoring the, the individual songs they play and the length of it, is nigh on perfect throughout. They know exactly when to hit the highs. They know exactly when to bring it down. And what I'll say about One Vision is, my God, what an opening. Oh, God. I mean, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant Queen song anyway. it's. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's my dad's favourite. So it's, it's definitely my favourite. It's definitely a song that I've heard a lot. And that opening, like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna get the gig going, that that opening riff that you've got, you've got your home, you've got a Queen crowd, and just opening with that, you, you've got them, you've got them straight away. Yep. Freddie is straight away on it. Absolutely nails it. John Deacon's bass is phenomenal. Yep. And they play it so fast. 
it's on um, it's on speed you know like it, it is properly fast but it's it works I mean, it, was, for that. it was probably definitely on coke <laughs> oh god <laughs> like that with a with degree of confidence <laughs> but you're right so yeah i love that little bass freak out in the middle during the breakdown from john deacon it's brilliant but yeah what i've remarked is that okay they've got the keyboardist and they'll have a backing track playing some stuff but fucking hell for four of them the sound is absolutely massive yeah it definitely sets the pulse racing as you said it's played at a fucking mac 4 and that roar from the crowd when the first strains of brian may's guitar mm-hmm. are played is so i know you as i do always have at least one listen through headphones fucking mm-hmm. that roar's massive yeah it's huge in the mix uh, i I think there are f- few better choices of song to whip the audience up into a frenzy to start your gig. It's a great opener. It's a yeah, great it choice. It is. And we finish with an unnecessarily drawn-out rock ending. Yeah. Um, which bodes well for the first song of 28. <laughs> yeah. Like, you, so you've absolutely got me. And then you... End the fucking song. End the song. <laughs> Uh, they do eventually end the song. Yeah, but it takes its time. It does. Uh, at which point they're going to tie your mother down. Which is a belting choice. It's like, a great it, song. Like, it's just annoying that you have to have the wanky end to a really good song. Because <laughs> then you pick you pick the pace back up. It's like, yeah, just keep the pace going. I'm sound with that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, So I like a rock ending. Cal Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> But I agree. I think you can just kick straight from one to the other. You don't need the unnecessary, drawn-out, elaborate, self-indulgent rock ending. <laughs> just, just yeah, exactly. Just, just keep going. Wonder who insisted on that. <laughs> it was definitely John Deacon. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the thing: you start big, you stay big, and they stay big. So. It was the second single from the Day at the Races, which was released in 76. It got to number 34 in the UK. This was basically played in every single gig they performed after its release. It was that much of a staple of their live sets, which I can understand why. Yeah, I mean, I really like the song. But of the Queen canon, whilst you know it, it's not It's not one that you think will definitely be in. No, that's true. But but I'm glad it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. And Freddie sounds amazing. He absolutely does. Uh, you've got a phenomenal face melter from Brian May. Uh, as much as we've derided him thus far, Roger Taylor is beating the life out of the skins on this. He sounds fucking huge again. It's just, it's mind-blowing, the energy. that You know, you, mm-hmm. you think, you're thinking at this point, guys, fucking slow it down. You're going to give yourselves a coronary if you don't calm down. Yeah, you cannot play at that pace. No, exactly, exactly. All right, should we move on? Oh, sorry, the, the last thing. This, again, has a massive rock ending. So yeah, it does. We're two for two. <laughs> <laughs> should we go on to In the Lap of the Gods? Yeah. Oh, I sense that you are not overly keen on this one. So, my notes. It sounds epic and it's very bombastic. Yeah. But the the song itself leaves me quite cold. Okay. It's fine, but 
maybe it's because it's one that I'm less familiar with. Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that. Yeah, okay. So I'm less familiar with it too, but I really like it. It does sound epic. I think you've got a massive anthemic chorus. Uh, again, the guitar's huge. The drums are huge, again, as you'd expect from Queen. I just want to read something from Brian May on it. He said, It's always a thrill to take an old song that you haven't dealt with for a while out of the cupboard and stand it up again to see what happens. In the Lap of the Gods was always one of my favourites, one of Freddie's great outgoing moments. It used to be a staunch pivot point of the show, before we had such things like We Are the Champions to end the show. I still got chills up my spine doing the beginning of that song. So for a long time they used it as the show closer, as Brian May says there, before We Are the Champions. You can very much see why. Uh, it came from Sheer Heart Attack, so it was released in 1974, so it is quite an early song, because Sheer Heart Attack was their third album. I like it. I I completely get what you're saying. I like it. No, fair fair enough. It it did something for you that it didn't really do for me. All right, okay. So we go into a little bit of a medley, I guess, now? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that, yeah. Right, so the first part of it is Seven Seas Awry, which uh, is from... Which is a belter. It is a belter from their second song, Queen 2, in 74. And again, it bounces along at a hell of a pace. It, it, it sort of serves as a bridge between Lap of the Gods and, and what we get next. So it's only, what, a minute, minute and a half, something like that? Yeah, it's too short. Uh, yeah, exactly. You want more. Yeah, and the, and the crowd does as well. Like, you can hear, like, as they go off, and you can tell they want, they want a bit more of it, really. Absolutely right, they do. But we don't get more of it because we move straight on to tear it up. So we shoot 10 years forward in terms of Queen's back catalogue. This is from 1984's The Works. It was written by Brian May. It basically is an attempt to recreate the sound of Queen 2. And again, you can hear that because it serves as a good companion, if you like, to Seven Seas Awry. I don't have a great deal to say about the song itself. The only thing I've realised is that I enjoyed the song and I liked the fact that it kept up the momentum. Absolutely. I've said I've said something similar. I've said five tracks in and the energy levels still haven't dropped. And again, that is just incredible. Because this isn't a young band. Well, you, you know, you're playing Wembley Stadium. You've sold it out for two nights. You're about to go and play Nebworth. Of course, it's not a young band. You're an established band. But... And we'll come on to talk about what Freddie was going through at this time. The energy levels that he is able to keep up throughout this performance are mesmerising. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've got nothing else to say about tearing it up, so I suggest we move on, if that is okay. Yeah, it's a little-known um, obscure <laughs> number. Uh, yeah, so It's a Kind of Magic is the next one, uh, taken from the 86 album that I referred to earlier. What that album basically was a re-recording of the soundtrack to the Christophe Lombert, Sean Connery classic Highlander. <laughs> we'll get into that in, a, in about three times. we will. <laughs> I fucking love It's a Kind of Magic. It is, it's up there with One Vision in terms of my favourite Queen songs. I love it. It's such a great performance. So I think it's really good set management. Mm-hmm. The having that slow intro after the start, it gradually brings the crowd into it, and then bang, the performance is great. Freddie, it's Freddie, and the 
band are tight as fuck. All three of them are absolutely on it. Yes, I agree entirely. A hundred percent. Just um a couple of things I I want to read in terms of quotes. And it's again, it's from that same DVD bonus track documentary. So Brian May says, I very much enjoyed translating the recorded experience onto the live experience. It brings you back to the basics. Something like a kind of magic we were doing a very different way to on the record. We felt completely free to do that. I, I, I think it's a great performance, but I don't think it's different to what's on no. the record. So fine. You, you started it slow. Like that's, <laughs> that's about it. But here's the one I really wanted to read. Roger Taylor counters that by saying, usually live, they'd end up a bit faster with a huge ending. Yep. (laughs) 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 Uh, Yeah, as you said, Freddie sounds incredible on this. The energy levels still don't drop. And then right at the end, uh, to lead into the song we're about to talk about, it's Freddie being Freddie. It's... yeah. The crowd eating out of the palm of his hand. The ultimate showman. Yes. Like, we've talked about before, like, just me and you not on the pod. Like, if we were putting together our fantasy bands, mm-hmm. who, who's your front man? It's definitely Freddie. It's, it's Freddie. Yeah. Because he, he just can work a crowd. Like, they are, like, he gets them straight away, and he, he has them in the palm of his yeah. hand for the whole bloody thing. There is only, and you need to bear with me with this, Kev, because it will it will elicit a laugh. There's only one performer in any field of art that I've ever seen that comes remotely close to Freddie, and even then it's a distant second in terms of that ability, as you said, to work a crowd and to just be able to have them eaten out of the palm of his hand. It's the rock, and I mean that. It's the rock. Yeah, like the 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 rock is is definitely like you know he he is fantastic at what he does. But yeah, it's uh, so. And, and the thing is, he's even got them eating out of Palmer's hand when he tells them to go fuck themselves towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that takes us into under pressure, which, as you alluded to right at the top of the show, is Queen and David Bowie. Released in 81, featured on Queen's album Hot Space in 82. It was Queen's uh, only their second number one in the UK. It only got to number 29 in the US. And recorded during a quite drug-fueled session in Montreux. Yeah, let's go into that, shall we? So, (laughs) Brian May, in an interview with Mojo in 2008. It was hard because you had four very precocious boys and David who was precocious enough for all four of us. David took over the song lyrically. Looking back, it's a great song, but it should have been mixed differently. Freddie and David had a fierce battle over that. It's a significant song because of David and his lyrical content. I I don't necessarily see how it should have been mixed differently. Maybe no. Brian May thought his guitar should have been higher in the mix. Well, yeah, he like him being a guitarist is like the guitar should be turned up. It's like no. Of all the things in this song is that you don't need the guitar turning up because the vocals have to be right at the top of the mix. Maybe he thought Adam Lambert was too quiet. <laughs> or that it should have had Paul Rogers on backing vocals. I don't know. No, what he's pissed off about is that nobody thinks about the guitar work on Under Pressure. Because there is no... It doesn't need any fucking guitar work. Because, because what you think about is the bass opening and you think about the vocals. That's it. You don't really... 
think about anything else in it. Nope, exactly. But yeah, so the, 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 the sessions were were not as convivial as one might hope uh, with a coming together of two of the most iconic artists of their time, or of any time, in fact. What do you think of this version? So I have a quite. I, I made a note here. Does Freddie actually sing on it? Because I can't... I couldn't hear him. I couldn't... T- like, I can hear Roger Taylor. So that's one thing I've... So Freddie does sing on it, yes. He absolutely does sing on it, but... But he doesn't sing like Freddie sing. Like, it's much, it's a much more restrained performance. I agree. And Roger Taylor's vocal is far too prominent in the mix. I completely mm-hmm. agree with you there. Freddie does sing on it, yes. And you can... This is the... The first time where you can hear that Freddie's health is starting to impact on his ability to perform to the levels that he has sustained for so long. I'll just say that. Mm -hmm. And again, to be fair, this is the seventh song and they've had everything, you know, up to 11. Fair enough. He he has a rest in this. Absolutely. But if you're going to do that, then give Dave a call and say, Dave, fancy it. You know, come on. Was, was. <laughs> we'll come on to that in a couple of weeks. <laughs> it's fine. This version, it's fine. I think it's really... So, obviously, we will get onto it when we do uh, the Bowie one. I have a very different feeling about that version than I do this one. So do I. But I don't think our different feelings are going to be the same feelings. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's fine. It's reasonably well-performed. But this song is a duet between mm-hmm. David Bowie and Freddie Mercury, and it should always be such. Yeah. All right. Should we move on? Yeah. Um, so again, this is a, a minimalist, uh, quiet performance from Freddie. <laughs> so another one bites the dust. Uh, taken from the album "The Game," released in 1980, quite famously written by John Deacon. Uh, the single reached number two in the US, number seven in the UK. So, in a rare interview uh, given in 1996, John Deacon said about the song, I listened to a lot of soul music when I was in school, and I've always been interested in that sort of music. I've been wanting to do a track like Another One Bites the Dust for a while, but originally all I had was the line and the bass riff. Gradually, I filled it in and the band added ideas. I could hear it as a song for dancing, but had no idea it would become as big as it did. The song got picked up and some of the black radio stations in the US started playing it, which we'd never had before. Michael Jackson actually suggested we release it as a single. He was a fan of ours and he used to come to our shows. That's quite interesting, actually. Yeah. Well, I suppose you can hear, like, certainly in some of the guitar work on Thriller, that there is some kind of link to, to some to some Queen sounds there. Mm-hmm. So the song is all about the bass line. Mm-hmm. And this is a really, really good rendition of the song. And, and a, John Deacon is, is great throughout it. I was really so yeah, John Deacon's great, Freddie again, like it goes it goes without saying. I thought the the funk freak out in the middle was was interesting. I wasn't expecting that. So can I read you my notes about that very same funk freak out? Yeah, sure. Brian May is trying his best to do some funky guitar parts. He's a great guitarist, but he's not Nile Rogers. <laughs> I didn't say it was good, I said it was interesting. <laughs> 
But as you said, Freddie again manipulating the crowd to to obey his every whim, and he sounds incredible. This is the second consecutive night at Wembley. It was lashing down with rain the night before, so everyone would have been feeling absolutely minion when they got up on that Saturday morning. This is show 25 of a 26-night tour, and he's, let's put it mildly, ill. Really fucking ill. Wow. The only thing I would say about this is that, for me... Well, you know what I'm going to say. It's too long. Like (laughs) the extended end, like I could lose a bit of it. Let's have a chat in a couple of weeks when we go through the Bowie album, shall we, Kev? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm fine with all of that. (laughs) No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And then at the end, here's the last thing I want to say on this. Freddie talks about the rumours doing the rounds that Queen are about to split up. And he says they're talking out their ass, and they're not splitting up. And he says we're going to stay together until we fucking will die. Just it's, it's poignant. It's tragically prescient, isn't it? It's it's. Mm-hmm. He probably knew things weren't right. Indeed, indeed. Uh, speaking of things not being right, shall we move on to who wants to live forever? <laughs> <laughs> so yes, the title song from the uh, Sean Connery and Christopher Lambert vehicle. The Highlander. I've always hated this song. I mean, all I've said is, at least they finally brought the tempo down because I was beginning to genuinely fear for the safety of the crowd. (laughs) Well, given the amount of stonewashed denim that's (laughs) likely in there. Like a personal advert from 1986. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, think of of the big fat fellas in their stonewashed denim with their long hair. They're going to be sweating something wrong. And tight white t-shirts, Kev. Let's not forget that. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Barely stretching over their belly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, No, I've never really liked this song either because it's shit, that's why. And it's it's so shit that Freddie can't even be bothered to sing the first verse. Makes Brian May do it. So, so what I what I put is, I think I think it's performed well. Like I don't like the song, but they perform it well. Yeah. But this is definitely the point where I where I'd nip for a piss and a pint. <laughs> I've written that somewhere later on, <laughs> but I can see what you mean here. <laughs> Shall we move on? Yeah. A little-known song called I Want to Break Free. Taken from, again, from 1984's The Works, written by John Deacon. It reached number three in the UK, but only number 45 in the US. Uh, Would you like to speak about why that was, Kevin? Was it something to do with the video, by any chance? Yes, it was. The famous cross-dressing video, which, by the way, is brilliant. Despite it being Roger Taylor's idea... I think the inherent beauty of, of this is that the rest of the band make the effort to look generally like women. <laughs> and Freddie keeps his touch. Well, apparently the, the inspiration for Freddie's character was Bet Lynch from Coronation Street. So, to be fair... You... he did. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I bet Julie Goodyear is probably fucking fuming. Like, what, I've got yes. topics like that? Although Freddie also described the character as a Liverpoolian slag, which isn't great. So, you know, I'm not, not, too, not too keen on that. Fuck off, Freddie. Exactly. 
This is one of my favourite Queen songs. It's a belter. Yeah. It, you know, it's really well done. It is really well done. And we've talked about he's got the crowd eating out of his hand. Fuck me. The audience interaction here. Lovely, lovely stuff. Very much so. The only thing I'll say about it, it ends really abruptly. The, I like the way that the the original version of the song, the way it ends, the way it nicely comes to a conclusion and fades out. This just fucking stops. I'm like, oh, okay. There you go. It's like we're bored of playing this now. Yeah, exactly. Particularly given they're about to go into an impromptu freeform jam. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, can I read you my notes on this? Oh, yes, please. It sounds like the theme of a 1980s comedy thriller series about a private detective firm. I'm half expecting Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard to take to the stage and engage in some will-they-won't-they banter. So, I read (laughs) verbatim. Is this from an 80s cop show? (laughs) There you go. The hive mind is back. (laughs) (laughs) What what, what is it? What is this? What is this? Well, we'll continue that. Right, we will. So, I just want to read from Roger Taylor. Some nights, impromptu bits, we always had a rough idea of what shape it might take. But really, depending on the night and how well we were sparking off each other, it would go to all sorts of places. Some nights, stuff came out that was just great. I'm not sure this is one of those nights, Rog. No, I'm bored. <laughs> You're having a lovely time. I'm gutted that, like, in the big queue, because we're at Wembley, and we know that the bars are shit there, <laughs> so I'm, I'm gutted that I've missed I want, want to Break Free, but I'm all right. I'm okay with that, because I'm missing this wanking well speaking of which this isn't even the most spinal tap moment on this album oh my god (laughs) so so without further ado kev shall we go on to sort of brighton rock so i will preface this I really like Brighton Rock, the the song. I think it's an absolute belter. <laughs> it and is. The, the way it's used in Baby Driver is brilliant. Yeah, it is. So the first thing, the first thing I noted down is fucking get on with it. <laughs> like, it's two minutes before anything fucking happens. Four minutes in, I am actively angry. And it goes on and on. <laughs> and nothing happens. I Oh my god! Like I wanted to like honestly at that point I'd lot I'd it's like do you know what do I have like I started looking at how many more songs I needed to listen to <laughs> it's like I know there's good stuff coming but fuck me is this gonna be in, like another half an hour of this shit <laughs> exactly uh, may I read to you a quote from Brian May about this guitar solo. <clears throat> The guitar solo, I had to be very careful because you can fall into a trap. If something works and it's going well, the tendency is to keep doing it, but it doesn't work that way. You've got to take it to its natural peak and let it go. Things get old. You have to keep yourself fresh and the audience fresh. So Kev, did he keep you fresh throughout the nine minutes of this guitar solo? I mean, if by keeping fresh that I wanted to eat a urinal cake... then yeah <laughs> so in all seriousness here's what i've written so brighton rock in itself is mostly guitar solo anyway so just play the fucking song 
Yeah. Why? I love me a long song, as we know by now. I love me a self-indulgent guitar solo. You know this. But fucking hell, Brian, no one wants this. Honestly, all that is missing here is Nigel Tufnell walking out on stage, playing his guitar with a violin. I'm not joking. No, you're right. (laughs) So angry. (laughs) I thought you'd like this. It honestly, it took me, it took me ages to like get over the annoyance from this. You will understand that from when I read my notes as we're going through. (laughs) Well, should we move on then? (laughs) Yeah, let's go. Now I'm here. Uh, So it's another one from Sheer Heart Attack, as Brighton Rock was. Ross Taylor said, there were certain bits I used to dread because they were exhausting. Now I'm here. That was always very exhausting. If I'd done a workout, I wouldn't have had the energy to do the show. It was very physically draining every night. And I can hear that on this song, to be fair. Well, I was already drained from the previous fucking song. <laughs> but that's what I was going to say that. It's like, Rod, you've had nine minutes to rest, mate. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I've never liked this song. Oh, see, I've always liked Now I'm Here. It's perfectly well performed, but I'm already annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a song that I don't particularly like, so I'm not having a lovely time. Okay, fair enough. So what I've said is I, I, I always have liked now I'm here. I think it's a really great bounce along rock and roll tune. I think the main riff that comes in throughout the song, do no 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 do. I think it's really really good. I'm not surprised Roger Taylor found it draining because some of those drum fills are unbelievable. As I said a few minutes back, he may have been a bell end or still be a bell end for that matter, but fucking hell, he could drum. Yeah, I mean, for a man in love with his car, that <laughs> he could drum. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Had to get it in. Had to get it in. Okay, that's now I'm here. You weren't a great fan of it. I quite like it. Love of my life is the next song. It's an old song of theirs. It's from Night at the Opera. Care for what you think? So it's a perfectly nice acoustic number. Um, I like the crowd singing along with it. it. It doesn't blow me away musically. I can understand why they've need to, needed to throw a couple of slow less bombastic ones in because they just need to fucking breathe. Yeah, it, it's fine. It's okay. I, I don't like it. So, apparently it's written about Mary Austin, who was Freddie Mercury's... Well, she, she was his uh, lover for quite a long time until mm-hmm. he came out as gay. Uh, but they stayed lifelong friends beyond that. It's obviously a crowd favourite because, like you said, the number of people that are singing along with it, it, it is quite extraordinary. Um, this is the time in the gig that I'm deciding to go for a piss and a pint. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can see that. I, I don't come to Queen to listen to acoustic ballads. Sorry. <laughs> well, we will continue this. <laughs> and what's worse is that before the song starts, Brian May decides to say something. Fuck off, Brian. Uh, yeah, we don't um, need you to talk about the new Ford Mondeo. No, exactly. There's some fucking badgers being killed somewhere. Go and look after them. <laughs> <laughs> and Adam Lambert is a prick. <laughs> I don't know who he is. Yeah. No, I've got no idea. Like The fella from Free always seemed a prick. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, indeed. Uh, Kev, is this the world we created? Would you like to know what my first note is? Go on. It's a Queen Issues song. <laughs> 
Let's get political and stuff. This is not what I come to you for. Absolutely not. Particularly after they fucking played Sun City the year before. It sung perfectly well. That's all I can say. It's just fucking boring. Yeah. It's really boring. I've finished my piss, but they're still playing shitty acoustic songs. So, yeah, I'm going to the bar. Should I just get two each? Because, like, (laughs) this is the... Come on. This is shit. Let's move on. Oh, they've only got Red Stripe left. <laughs> Kev, Red Stripe should be mandatory at all gigs. You know I've <laughs> Well, it's, it's usually either Red Stripe or Carling, so I will always choose Red Stripe. Exactly. And all that terrible Carlsberg cider. What's it called? Sotheby's. No, that's an auction Oh, house. God, that's terrible. Summersby. No, that's a film with Richard Gere. The shitty Carlsberg cider. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know the one you mean. Uh, you're so square, baby. I don't care. So it we enter sort of a fifties um, medley, really. I really, really like this. Yeah, yeah, I've really enjoyed this. I agree. So Brian May said things like this are great because they take you back to the absolute roots where you came from. Those are the things which we kicked around with Freddie when we first met him. Uh, yeah, it's good fun. It's a good way to start bringing me back into things after, a, let's be honest, a few low points. So yeah, this I mean this whole section is really good fun. Yeah, and he does a really good Elvis impression. I agree he does a great Elvis impression. Uh as he does a really good Ricky Nelson impression on Hello Mary Lou. I had I had it down that he was doing a Gene Pitney. Oh, okay. So it was written well no, it was written by Gene Pitney. Did he it was originally recorded by Johnny Duncan in nineteen sixty. I don't know that Gene Pitney ever recorded it, although he may have done. I thought he did, but the most famous version, or the, certainly the version that I am most familiar with, is Ricky Nelson from 61. But anyway, regardless, all I'll say on this is you just try listening to this without tapping your feet and without singing the chorus, because I don't think it's possible. It's a fantastic pop song, and it's a good rendition of it, and I'm having lots of fun now. Yeah, it's 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 really good. It's really it's fun. It is fun. And we continue the fun with Tutti Frutti. Uh, obviously, Little Richard uh, originally recorded this in 1955. And, yeah, get in. I like the way it starts in the same way as the last two. Just the acoustic guitar of Freddie's vocals. Mm-hmm. And then halfway through, fucking get in, the band's back. And it's just an absolute riot to the end. Yeah, it's, it's really good fun. Again, like really enjoying enjoying myself here. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and this is one where I think the massive rock ending absolutely suits what we've just had. No, I, th- it I think it's well placed. Yeah, the it it makes sense because you've kind of had it stripped back and a lot more sort of for want of a better phrase, skiffily. That yeah, having having the the Queen sound kind of kick back in at the end tells you that yeah. right, okay, strap in. We're we're coming to the end. Yeah, we're going into the home straight now. Yeah, absolutely right. Although, before we get to the home straight, there's a a, a short snippet of the intro to the absolute banger from the Spencer Davis group, Gimme Some Lovin'. And I didn't like it. I love the song, Gimme Some Lovin'. Yeah. But I thought, yeah, it's a bit shit, this. It is a bit shit. And and it it doesn't work because from that, it just stops and then goes into Bohemian Rhapsody. I, I don't get it. No, it, it's like they started it and just went, oh, yeah, that's fuck not working it. right, fuck it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yeah, we'd obviously then go on to Bohemian Rhapsody. It is obviously the most famous Queen song, yes? Yeah. 
Uh, it's been Christmas number one in the UK twice, in 1975 and in 1991. It was taken from A Night at the Opera. I mean, it would take me about an hour to talk through the whole song, so I'm not going to do that. I'll just talk about this version. Is it too early in the set? Possibly, but it, this comes towards the end of the main set before the encore. I'd have thought that you would you would close the main set before the encore with this. That, that's just my, my thinking. Okay, let's hold that thought before <laughs> we come on to what does close the main set in a second. So what I'll say about this is, to be fair, of all the songs I've ever heard, I can't think of one that will be more difficult to play live mm-hmm. than Bohemian Rhapsody. And this is a brilliant live version of that song. Yeah, it's. I mean, they, they do it fantastically. It's weird because they have to do it. So they, they perform a bit and then... They play like a bit from the song and then cut, kick back in. Yeah, the middle section, you know, the Galileo Figaro, that's just the record played on the big screen. Okay, so you're right. Although, in fairness, I cannot conceive of how you could recreate that live. No, like, you, I can understand why, because you can't perform it live otherwise. No, it's precisely. But when the band comes back in after that, fucking hell. It's, again, it's huge. It's epic. They're, they're blowing the fucking roof off with the energy. Mm-hmm. Freddy's on top form. The crowd's going off. The fucking pyro everywhere. Let's fucking have it. Yeah, let's let's go. And let's go from Bohemian Rhapsody into Hammer to Fall, which closes the main set. Belter. It is a belter, and that's why I said hold that thought, because you said, would you have Bohemian Rhapsody close the main set? I see your point, but I actually think the way they do that into Hammer to Fall is fucking great. Mm-hmm. No, it is. It is really good, and the performances. It, I've always liked Hammer to Fall, and I think that it's performed fantastically. Yeah, it is performed fantastically. So, fair play to Brian May. We've slagged him off quite a lot. Not, Not without justification but he's helped bring the energy levels right back up here to almost aneurysm inducing levels his guitar work here is fucking brilliant this is a great rock song with everyone tight as fuck throughout it well and i suppose like whilst i may i may have closed it with bohemian rhapsody i can understand because like if you think of how the main set has opened with that gut punch from One Vision, that you can't, as soon as it kicks in, like you get the gut punch from Hammer to Fall. Yes, agreed entirely. Really good. And that closes the main set. Uh, shall we go on to the encore? Yeah, and a song that you, you're a huge fan of. Well, so it's a crazy little thing called Love, and which actually would have sat better with the 50s mm-hmm. rock and roll medley. Uh, and I've said, you know, would it have been better placed after Tutti Frutti? It's a great rendition. It really is. John Deacon's bass. It's great. It's brilliant. But to start the encore, after you've finished your main set with two huge, massive rock tracks, is it a bit jarring to go back to sort of 50 style rock and roll? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and it's a bit long as well. Yeah, absolutely. It does go on too long. Uh, 100%. It's um, it's Brian May again, isn't it? All right, Brian, come on. Yeah, yeah come on. Fair come enough. on, crack on, lads. Let's, let's finish on. 
Uh, oh, yeah, and uh, Shaking Stevens owes his entire fucking career to this song. <laughs> <laughs> Big Spender. Okay, fine. I mean, of course, Freddie Mercury wants to sing the song that Shirley Bassey made famous. Fabulous, darling. But So I made, I made me note on here that I, I don't really like it. It doesn't stay around too long. I'd say it's probably better if you were at the gig or watching on the DVD. Yes. Because Freddie's obviously going to be camping it up and having a lovely time. And it's probably a highlight of the set. But listening to it, to just the sound, it's not. Agreed entirely. So let's move on to Radio Gaga. I mean, all I would say is, at this point, are there any fucking songs off the works that they haven't played? (laughs) (laughs) It was released in January 84 as a single. It got to number 14 in the US, number 2 in the UK. This is another one that I thought would have been quite difficult to play live, because it's quite, certainly for Queen, it's quite Mm -hmm. electronic-sounding. But I think this is a great version. It's a fucking tour de force. Yeah, it is. And you you saw it at when they did a live aid. The yeah. you can understand why this is a staple of the live set because the crowd are absolutely bang into it. Yeah. They play it a million miles an hour again. Yeah. It's yeah, it's just fucking amazing. Like it everyone, is. everyone is on point. Yeah, it. I agree. It is. Everyone is on point. It is fucking amazing. But I have no more to say about it, so shall we race on to We Will Rock You? Okay. Incredibly, this is the first one we've heard from News of the World. And we are very near the end of the show. Mm-hmm. So, Roger Taylor, in terms of how they translated the record uh, to the live performance, Roger Taylor said there were no drums on the actual record. It was just feet and hands. It's actually quite hard to play that very simple beat on the drums to approximate the sound of the hands and feet. And if you've seen Bohemian Rhapsody of the film, there is a, a scene which sort of alludes to that. Mm-hmm. I don't care about Roger Taylor's drumming because this is all about Freddie. Warp factor 10. He belts this out. It's Again, I'll go back to... He was fucking ill at this point mm-hmm. in his life. And he's still able to stand up after two hours and go, here you fucking go. It's just some dickhead on drums and me singing, and I'm giving it everything I've got. Wow. So, I completely agree with everything that you've said. But? I I said about how really well done it was, but the live version, does it show up that there isn't actually a great deal to the song? There's nothing to the song. And because it's slightly extended, it kind of shows you that there's not a huge amount going on here. Like, yeah, it's and it's it is glued together solely by Freddie. Well, actually, no, that's that's unfair to Brian May because I was going to say I, I I think the solo at the end is pure Brian May, and and it's the one thing that I was going to comment on is that as much as Freddie, uh, rightly so, was Queen. And is very much what everyone thinks about first when they think about Queen. Soz Adam Lambert, you prick. (laughs) (laughs) And your man from Free. I ain't letting it go. (laughs) What Brian and Freddie knew about their dynamic is they knew when to stay out of the other's way. Mm -hmm. And on a live performance in particular. And I think when Brian May comes in at the end of this, it is bombastic. It's huge. It's... Everything he thought the nine-minute Brighton Rock solo was going to be, mm-hmm. but he achieves it in 45 seconds. Yeah. So there you go. 
Uh, but you're right about the song. There's actually nothing to it. It's, it's never been one of my favourite Queen songs, but it is phenomenally performed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Friends will be friends. What a really odd choice. Yes, it is a really odd choice. So essentially the second the second to last song mm-hmm. and it's Friends Will Be Friends. Yep. A song that I don't I've never really been that keen on. And it's like you what? What what's that about? So this is song number twenty six, is it? Yeah. And you've segued it in between two of your most famous songs. Okay. I, I like the way that they go straight into it and then straight out of it. So it is a good bridge between two classics. Fine. And I think it's well performed. I don't get it as a choice. No, you don't it's... need it here. You are honestly, even the diehards in the front row are knackered now, boys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Can it, we it, just start bringing this but, to an end? But like, if you drop this... And you go, Radio Gaga, We Will Rock You, the next song. Yeah. That's what a, an end. That's a hell of an ending. It is. I agree entirely. Well, shall we go on to We Are The Champions? Yeah. Uh, so also from News of the World, it got to number two in the UK and number four in the US. Uh, is it Queen's second most famous song? Obviously, Bohemian Rhapsody being the most famous song. I mean, it's probably their most played song because it's it's <laughs> utilised at every sporting yeah, event. Absolutely. And karaoke lovers. So, here is a, a story of mine, and this is going on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago, Shell and I took a holiday in Portugal before we had kids. And on the last night of, of said holiday, at three in the morning... We ended up in the hotel bar singing We Are The Champions with a mad German family. And I mean, like, there's 12 of the family, like three <laughs> generations. They're all, we're all there, absolutely belting this out at three in the morning. All of us are pissed as farts. It was fucking great. That sounds um, like all the good fun. <laughs> it was all good fun. I mean, German people know how to have good fun. Belting Queen out, yeah. great stuff. Portugal, lovely place. So, yeah, all good. <laughs> the super box uh i'm sure ran ran that <laughs> uh i think it was more sagres than super box actually well, i'm fine with sagres <laughs> absolutely okay enough of the jokes so it's a brilliant way to end any gig this of course yeah it's colossal it's huge i have a however and i'm gonna bring the tone down i am afraid to say this is the first time in the entire gig, which admittedly is two and a half hours old by now, that I get a sense that Freddie's flagging. His voice strains at times here. That might be just fatigue. Mm -hmm. Second night of two at Wembley, 25 nights into a 26-night tour, fine. But we know what happens next. Mm -hmm. It's the first time in the whole thing I think, ooh, he can't get there. He, He tones it down quite a lot, actually, in this. I mean, he still sounds brilliant and better than 99% of anyone you're going to hear sing. But it's just the only time on this whole recording, as much as I don't like some of the songs that they've played, that I think, yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, I know, I know what you mean. And I think it. I think it's notable that this wasn't released when he was alive. And mm-hmm. maybe it's because... Like the vocal performance here wasn't to his high exacting standards, and it was only when he died that it got released then because 
he wasn't there to object to it. Maybe I'm, I'm merely speculating, but it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me. No, absolutely. But as you would expect from Queen, we have a epic rock ending to finish us off. Boom. Very, very much. Well, I was going to say. So we. <laughs> sorry. Yes, to finish us off, we have "God Save the Queen" to finish us off. And similarly, I have written one word about "God Save the Queen." Shall we go together in three, two, one? Uh, anyone that saw the FA Cup final, or particularly the press coverage following said FA Cup final uh, of 2022, will know to what we refer. In her <laughs> jubilee year. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we, as an edit point, you better hope that she doesn't die in the next two weeks. <laughs> Still going out, mate. <laughs> I have only one review okay. that I would like to talk about. And it, of course, it's from All Music. <laughs> it's from Greg Prato from All Music, who says the posthumously released two-disc Live at Wembley 86 proves once and for all that Queen was a superior live band and like the Beatles, the Stones, etc., had far too many hits to fit into a two-hour show. So why bother playing Is This The World We've Created? That's my words, not his. <laughs> This would unfortunately turn out to be the band's last tour, and it showed the group, including old rock and roll covers, classics, then current songs, improv, yeah, and overlooked album tracks. Live at Wembley 86 does a good job of balancing the well-known for the uninitiated and the lesser-known for the hardcore fan. Which is all factually correct. Mm-hmm. I-, I can't help but feel that it is a little understated yeah i I suppose it's a it's a funny album because there are moments of absolute peak queen and then Mm -hmm. it's definitely one for the for the hardcore i'll put it that way the is it i know what you mean parts of it are let's just go we'll, we'll get onto this next week not next week two weeks time yeah uh legacy which i ain't got much about all I have to say on Legacy is is after the tour, Freddie told his bandmates that he didn't want to do any more live shows. In spring of 87, he was formally, properly diagnosed with having AIDS. The band did reconvene in 1989 to record The Miracle. It's not a very good album at all. And so they didn't tour to promote The Miracle. He died in November 1991 shortly after the release of their last album, Innuendo, which is okay, actually. I quite like Innuendo. Yeah, it's got some good stuff on it. After his death, there was a benefit gig played at Wembley in April 1992 with numerous notaries, including Guns N' Roses, David Bowie, George Michael, Robert Plant, Elton John playing. It raised over £20 for AIDS charities. And then Queen was never heard from ever again. Because they never performed again. Never, ever. They all retired in dignity and went into obscurity. That's what happened, Brian and Roger. Nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) I'm seriously, I'm not going to comment on it. No, No, let's let's move on. Uh, All right, what's your best song? What's your worst song? So... My wor- I'll go with my worst song, and it's the Brighton Rock solo. It was interminable. It- <laughs> Jesus. 
And this is this is like this has got Who Wants to Live Forever, a song that I actively hate, and yet that isn't my worst song on it. I think God, it's um it's a tough one for best song because there are some absolute brilliant performances. I would say Radio Gaga oh. because everyone's on it and it's it's brilliant. Okay. Two different choices for me. I'll do my worst song first. Uh, I agree entirely with what you said about Brighton Rock. It is interminable. But that is still not my worst song on the album. The worst song on this album is, without doubt, is this the world we've created. All I've said is, boring. Sorry, it just We got political. (laughs) It's just, fuck off. Go away. Best, I agree, it's really hard. There is a lot to choose from, but I've got to go with One Vision because I cannot think of a more exciting song to open a gig with. So One Vision is my best. It's a belting choice. Yeah. And I think that is about it for Queen Live at Wembley 86. It's been a long one, guys. <laughs> we did one, yeah? Yeah, we're, we're back and we're bigger. <laughs> and the next part of this clash isn't going to be that much shorter either. No, because it's me talking about, about Bowie. About Bowie, so, exactly. You know. Oh, dear. Uh, but yeah, so two weeks' time, not next week. As I said, we are going, as Kev said, we are going fortnightly. But in two weeks' time, Kev will be taking us through David Bowie's, well, 2018 release of his 2000 set from Glastonbury Festival. Uh, before then, however, as is customary, Kevin, I took over the reins on our bonus pods. You did I really well. Did. There, well, there were good selections. I appreciate that. Uh, but please tell the listeners how they might keep in touch with us on the socials. So it was really hard this week. <laughs> Not much gone on this week. Given Ed. given what's been going on this week, and I didn't necessarily want to get into the the long grass of the of the absolute shenanigans that have been going on with the UK government. Please don't. <laughs> However, what I can what I can bring to you is that Twitter saved me. <laughs> As it always will. As it always will do. And our questionable um culture secretary Oh, has um, no. has thrown her hat into the ring to be the future prime minister of the UK, <laughs> and and hence on Twitter the hashtag #GoNads is uh, trending. <laughs> uh, no explanation necessary. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Whilst um, checking out GoNads on Twitter. <laughs> Um, you can check out our Twitter page at Clash Album. If you like carefully curated quality content, you can go to our Insta at Clash Album. Or if you want to sign us up for various uh, trusses or um, Robs, <laughs> yeah, uh, send us an email to albumclash at gmail.com. Brilliant. Uh, to be clear, there will be no gonads on the Elm Clash Twitter page <laughs> in any sense of that word. <laughs> oh dear. Excellent stuff. I mean, there's been so much has gone on whilst we've been away. Like, we've missed the whole Elon Musk buying Twitter thing for starters. <laughs> and being um, being very much pro-free speech unless it uh, slags him off. <laughs> Quite. Anyway, 
yeah, get in touch. We're back. So, you know, send us as many emails as you used to do, which is fuck all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope you have enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time with the second part of this clash. Uh, in the meantime, like, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your fucking friends, force them to listen at gunpoint if necessary. We're back. We are back. But yeah, that's about it for this week. Kev, what are you going to do in two weeks' time? I am going to take us through Bowie at Glastonbury 2000. Excellent stuff. All that's left to say is I have, as I remained in our hiatus, been Timothy. And I am the, the artist forming known as Kev. Brilliant. We'll see you in a couple of weeks, guys. Take care. Ta-da. Ta-da.